I'm, I told Pastor I was like a horse in the chute, ready to come out. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. I thought I'd sing a song here first, though. <clears throat> so this is a prayer. This is my favorite, probably one of the very most favorite songs I've ever written because it's a, it's a prayer of my life. Go ahead and start number seven. Let's just worship the Lord. Grant my desire. your prayer tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's our prayer, Lord. We ask you to wonderfully bless your word. We ask you to exalt the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit tonight. Hallelujah. And we ask you then, Lord, to, uh, we want to, we want you to be the leader of the church. We want you to be our leader every moment of our life. Surround us now with a great big guard of warrior angels so nothing can hinder. Put ministering angels by each of us to help us receive and retain your word. I ask you to take me over, and Lord, we vow to give you all the glory. We pray that a wonderful ripple effect will go around the world as a result of what happens here tonight. Now let's uh, say his name together. In Jesus' name. 
Now, I want to uh, tell you that when I was here in September, uh, the last year's feast, uh, I received uh, one day about 19 minutes of prophetic words. Uh, Kathy gave me a word, but, uh, well, that wasn't that afternoon, but that night after I preached, she said that God was giving me a trumpet, a spiritual trumpet, and... uh, uh, I don't know if we have to have all the lights off or not, but I guess we can see the screen clear. We're going to show a lot of pictures. Now, that's good enough. That's fine. Now, there we go. A little light here. So, uh, a spiritual trumpet, she said, and then Pastor Lonnie was telling me that God was going to use me as a spiritual father. And so, uh, December came, and one morning I got up, and I felt like God just downloaded into me Uh, a commission to write a book called Good and Faithful Servant, A Trumpet Call to Return to Spiritual Leadership. And I just, uh, I wrote several partners and people I knew and said, you know, a a company that sometimes gives an author an advance uh, so they have money to live on to write a book. I feel like I'm supposed to write this book and I have the month of December. Um, And $5,000 came in. December's always a scary month for guys like me because churches don't want to have any special meetings in December. And so God provided the money, and then in eight days, a 71,000-word book just gushed out of me. And it was uh, stuff I've learned over my lifetime. I could have never written a book in my younger days. It has to be a, a lifetime of, of experience. But So I want to give you... Uh, a highlight of the book. There's 61 drawings in the book, and it's my most illustrated book ever. So tonight I want to go through all those pictures, and I won't be able to give you the whole content of the book. We'll just hit some high points. But uh, you see that baby there. Now, the only person in a family who has no responsibility is the baby. (laughs) Because as you train the kids, you're supposed to have them responsible to make their bed or take out the garbage, or one day they'll do the dishes or something, and as they mature, they have to get responsibility. But in my opinion, just about the vast majority of American churches are keeping, the, allowing the people to be little babies. Now, once in a while, I, uh, I, ha- I don't have any place to preach, and I just have to go sit in a, like you're sitting. And I tell you what, I don't have near as much fun and if I just had to attend a church, I would absolutely have to be an usher or I'd have to be the toilet cleaner or I'd have to work in the nursery or I'd have to teach a class or I'd have to work in the parking lot because if all you do is sit and receive, after a while you won't be happy no matter how good the sermons are because the greater joy is what you give. Now, God is going to... Uh, help all of you have something wonderful to give and your own individual way to bring God massive glory. And when you see somebody else being used, don't ever think, oh, wow, they're so great and I'm so little. Because uh, no matter what their call is or how great their anointing is, God won't leave a single one of you out. He's got some special way for you to do something really significant, really wonderful. So you want to say, I want a ministry, Lord. I want to be able to give something. I don't want to stay a little spiritual baby. Say a good amen to that. 
Now, see, a lot of people want to stay a little baby because they don't want any responsibility. They wouldn't want to have to show up every Sunday and be a greeter or work in the nursery or something like that. And so the vast majority of the American church are little babies. That's dangerous. Amen? Because if you had an actual baby that stayed a baby, there'd be something drastically wrong with the little baby. And the parents would be sad. They'd be crying. Well, we don't want to make our Heavenly Father sad. Now, um, I have had a contention with leadership books for about 30 years. I've tried to read leadership books. I never could get into them. I never could bond with them. And after some years, I began to get angry at them. I would read one, and I'd think, this is so dry. This is so stupid. I can't find God in this stuff. And the reason is because it's secularized leadership. And the church has been fed secularized leadership for about 30 years where they'd say you can't be a successful pastor unless you study leadership. Here's the leadership books. And then the leadership books don't even mention the Holy Spirit. You got how many laws of leadership? Well, the first law is, honey, you're not the leader. The Holy Spirit is the leader. And when you're reading leadership books that don't mention the Holy Spirit, you might as well throw them in the trash. You might as well put them on the shelf with the occult books in the bookstore because they're not of God. They're secularized, they're unplugged, and they've damaged the church, badly damaged the church. So one of the greatest problems in the church that we face is secularized leadership training. Now Jesus told about the farmer who was successful. And he really knew how to grow crops. And he filled his barns and he said, I'll have to tear down my barns and build bigger barns because these barns can't hold it all. And I'll have good laid up for many years and I'll, I'll say, eat, drink, and be merry, you know. And Jesus said, the, 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 God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Then who's going to get what you laid up for yourself? And then he said, that's how it's going to be with everyone who's not rich towards God. Now, the most, the secularized leadership books and the success books of this world, there's all kinds of success books, see? But they're going to tell you how to build your barns, how to fill your barns, how to build bigger barns. They're going to tell you how to have a vision for your field. They're going to tell you how to make a team so that your team can go out there and fill your barns. And uh, it's all going to be about barns and bigger barns. And in our case, it's religious barns. But it has nothing to do with being rich towards God. And if you're not getting rich towards God, throw your leadership book in the trash. Because you're reading a book by Mr. A. Fool. Jesus said you, the, the Bible says God said to him, you fool. Now he had a vision. He knew how to influence people. He knew how to cast his vision. He knew how to communicate. All those chapters from leadership books, this guy had it down. But he wasn't rich towards God. Now the modern church in America is like an unplugged chandelier. And when the sun shines through the window, it's sparkling off the crystals and it looks really fancy. It looks really successful. The parking lots are full. The coffee bars are full. And uh, uh, the, the, you know, it looks like it's really successful. Notice it's not plugged in. Now when hard times come, and some, sometimes hard times are going to come... But then it's going to be irrelevant because without the sunshine of the natural prosperity, uh, all those kind of churches have no light. 
And so that you couldn't even see them. You'd be walking through the darkened church, you know, and there was no power, and you wouldn't even be aware that there was a chandelier there in the night. And so the churches that look so big and successful that aren't, aren't praying churches. They're unplugged chandeliers. Now, you can be an individual chandelier with a charming personality, and you can sparkle with your charming personality. And people can think, wow, you are really something. But honey, if you're not plugged in, in the dark times, you ain't got no light. You just have a charming personality. Now we have to decide that we want to be plugged in leaders. And you see, an ugly little lamp isn't very spectacular. But in the nighttime, you don't even see that little lamp. You just see the light. Now, what we need to do is train leaders, honey, if you're not plugged in, if you're not spending time with God, if you're not getting rich towards God, you haven't got any light. Sit down. You're not the leader. You're not a leader. Because you're not following the leader. Now, the first thing I would teach leaders... First thing I would teach leaders is you've got to have the heart motive of Jesus. That's what God started off with me. I was reading John 17 where Jesus said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you do. You gave me to do. And now, Father, give me the glory I had with you before the world began. And I said, he's asking for the glory. Isn't that wrong? And the Holy Spirit said, read it again. And when I read it again, he illumined the motive behind the prayer. Jesus said, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I can't bring you any more glory down here. So give me a higher heavenly platform so that there, from there I might bring you even more glory. That went deep into my heart. And then the... Then the Holy Spirit, the great leader of the church, began to compare my motive to Jesus' motive. They asked me to sing a solo one night, and the Holy Spirit said, Why do you want to sing tonight? I said, I want everybody to see I'm a good singer. Boy, he convicted me of sin. Amen? That's the motive of the devil. Now, how many of you know we got a lot of people in church trying to do the Lord's work with the devil's motive? self-glorification, and all the disciples wanted to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, we're talking about spiritual leadership, so that motive's got to get out of you, and you've got to decide, I want to glorify God in all things. I don't want the glory. I want Him to have the glory. And then when that's the bullseye of the target of purity, see? Purity starts with purity of motive. That's the bullseye. Purity of speech, and then finally sexual purity bullseye of purity of motive. Now, that I, I got possessed with that motive because all year long he'd quiz me. He said, why do you want to sing a song you wrote instead of one out of the hymnal? I said, I want everybody to see I'm talented, creative, and poetic as well as a good singer. And, and, and that bad motive just come up like scum and he'd just keep skimming it off till finally it was pure, sil- it was pure gold. And the senior day came, and they were going to say to the, the seniors had to say where we were going to go after graduation. One said, I've been voted in pastor over here. Uh, one said, I've been given a youth uh, position, you know, to lead the youth. One says, I've been given a choir to direct. And I was saying, what am I going to say, God? Because nobody was recruiting me for the ministry. When it came my turn, I stood up there and I said, I don't know where I'm going to go. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I only know the Why? I know that wherever I go and whatever I do, I'll do it all to bring glory to God. And I said it very humbly. And when they left, I went to the altar area and just cried. And uh, 
I didn't know what was going to happen to me, but I had this passion to bring glory to God. Now, I'm talking to you like you're young leaders. Many of you are very experienced, of course. But if I was speaking to young leaders, I would say, don't sweat. You can receive this, my brother. You don't have to know the when and the how and the what and the where. But you do need to have a burning why. And when that burning why is in your heart, it becomes the usher of God that will lead you the rest of your life. It will just open up all the, all the rest of the things. See? Usher of God is the burning motive to bring glory to Jesus. Now just lift your hands right now and, and tell the Lord you want to be taken over by that motive. And then the Holy Spirit, of course, is going to show you where your motive stinks. <laughs> He's going to tell you where your motive isn't pure. And he'll shift it until it gets pure. And then that motive will not only guide you, but it will give you the greatest perseverance that there is. You won't be able to give up because you couldn't stand letting the devil get any glory. Thank you, Jesus. Now... One time I was preaching on the heart motive of Jesus and I prayed for everybody to get that heart motive to glorify the Father and the prophet, prophetic guy saw a vision and he saw that God was putting something like Elmer's glue over everybody I prayed for. He said, what's that stuff you're putting on the people that looks like Elmer's glue? And the Holy Spirit said, that's the heart motive of Jesus and when I send my angels with the spiritual gifts, those gifts are going to stick to that motivation but if that motivation dries up, the gifts will fall off. Now you can look, if you've been in the ministry very long, you'll run into old ministers who have lost their anointing. Oh, well, plenty of young ministers don't have any anointing either. But the problem is they've lost their desire to bring glory to God. It's just a routine. So, Folks, it's wonderful to pray for people uh, to get wonderful gifts. God has gifts for every one of us. But you want to ask God to make you sticky first. <laughs> now lift your hand up and tell the Lord, I want to be so filled with that motivation to bring you glory. I want to be sticky, sticky, sticky. I want those gifts to bond to me, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. I always want to bring you glory. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Now, one day the Lord said the desire to bring me massive glory is actually called a prayer. Because you can never bring me massive glory unless you keep your spirit sweet. You can open a door for me in prayer, and then I'll come through the door and do the really great, big, and massive things you could never do. And then he told me there's five ways to bring him glory, and basic glory is... It's like where you'd help orphans and widows or you'd let people in in the, in the traffic. You'd open doors for people. You'd greet little kids in church. You'd take your dishes to the sink and rinse them so the dishwasher doesn't have to scrub off the dried eggs. And You see what I'm saying? Come on. You, you live a life of kindness, constant kindness. Added glory is where you win a soul. And if we're not winning any souls, then, then we've got to get alarmed. And I'm alarmed in my own life. I'm saying, God, I've got to win more souls. I'm used to preaching to Christians all the time. I, I want to have added glory again. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were 
added to the church. See? And so don't, don't be satisfied if you're not bringing anybody to Jesus. You've got to say, Lord, I, I want to bring you added glory. Now, all you know about God is like a box of thread. Your method is your needle that gets the thread into the material. And many times we know enough to win people to Jesus, but we don't have any method. So you want to ask God for a method. Some people like the Gideons. Their method is to give people Bibles. Some people are going to, you know, there's plenty of methods out there. If you don't have a method, you won't be winning any souls. So sometimes we need a a really good method that's like a sewing machine. Amen? (laughs) Amen. All right. Now, uh, multiply glory has to do with leadership. Train a leader. Become a leader. Encourage existing leaders. That multiplies glory. When the apostles raised the deacons up to be leaders, in those days the number of disciples was multiplied. And then great glory is where you keep your spirit sweet so you can open a door for God in prayer. And then compound interest glory is where you live a life of faithfulness and just keep going year after 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 some more years, amen, to cross that finish line. And when you put them all together, we ought to all be able to bring God massive glory. Say basic glory, wave your thumb, basic glory. Added glory, multiplied glory, great glory, compound interest glory. Make a fist and say, massive glory, massive glory. See, that's the fist that knocks out the devil. Now, when you pray, God, I want to bring you massive glory, the devil will mock you, right? Come on. See, if you pray that prayer, he's going to say, but do you realize who you are? Other people have a call, they can bring God massive glory. See, they can bring God massive glory. But you, no way. No way. Now, you just say, shut up, you lying devil. Jesus likes that prayer. He's smiling. Because how many of you know, he knew how to take that little lunch and multiply it and feed 5,000 men plus all the women and children with one little boy's lunch. It wasn't even a man's lunch, just a little boy's lunch. Wave your hand and say, well, I could be that little lunch. Hallelujah. <laughs> Come on, wave your hand to God and say, I'll just give myself to God. He can do something massive. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you about vision. Every leader has to have a vision. One time he said, are you leading to or just getting through? I said, I'm just trying to get through another day. He said, you stop being a leader. Now, to get through it, you've got to be going to it. For the joy set before him... Jesus endured the cross. He could get through it because he was going to that vision of having a church of every tribe, tongue, and language in the whole world, every race, every language. So for that joy, he could get through it. Now, if you don't have a God-given vision, you're not happy, and you're having a terrible time getting through life. God has a vision for each one of you, and you don't want to make up your own vision. You want to get the vision from God for the joy set before him. God wants to set the vision before you. Now, when the vision comes, it's going to be kind of a generalized vision. Later, God will give you step by step. And I just want to tell you, get God's general idea, and then don't run ahead of God and fill in all the blanks. Because the vision is progressive, and it's one step at a time. Now, when God told Apostle Paul he was going to 
go to Rome. Jesus appeared to him. But then, you know, how he uh, went through an assassination attempt and then two years in prison where the judge wanted to bribe and he wouldn't bribe him and uh, wouldn't give him a trial. And then eventually he gets on a ship and then they have a hurricane and and uh, then he ends up on the island of Malta and ends up leading all the people of Malta to Christ. But that's where the angel on the ship said, you're going to run aground on an island. The ship's going to be destroyed. God has given you the souls of everybody sailing with you, right? See, sometimes a vision has to be clarified, and then it comes into high definition. Amen? But see, if I've gotten a vision from God before, and then I'd try to make it bigger. I'd try to fill in things on my own. And, um, well, I don't have time to describe all that goes wrong when you do that. (laughs) Now, a vision can be very selfish. And here's a coach. He's got a vision, but his vision is selfish. My vision is to be the winningest coach ever. And subconsciously, it's me, me, me. Now, this good coach here, he's looking at his his team, and he's saying, you, you, you. (laughs) I see you as champions, see? Now, King Solomon, if you read the book of Ecclesiastics, he said, I built great buildings for me. I raised horses and had stables for me. I built flourishing vineyards for me. I had this for me. I did this for me. And his whole vision, he started off wise, but he became very foolish. And so after he died... They came to his son, Rehoboam, and said, Your father laid a heavy burden on us. Lighten your load. Now, what he was doing is using the people to fulfill his vision. And what you want to do is have the people be your vision. And so one time I was out walking, and I said, Lord, what's the greatest achievement in my life that I'll ever do? And I named off some. I said, I've signed up 5,000 kids to ride buses. I've been on the radio for so many years with a self-supporting program. I've written a book that's going around the world in 17 languages. I started a church, and I was naming off stuff. I said, what, what is the greatest of those achievements? What do you consider the greatest? He spoke to me and said, it'll probably be someone you encourage who will do greater things than you'll ever do. Now, if my vision ever matured, I believe that was a very maturing moment because instead of now my vision is you. See, if I can encourage you, you might become my greatest achievement. And I never know where that's going to happen. I never know exactly who. That's why I try to greet everybody whenever I'm in churches. I try to greet as many as I possibly can. I'm shaking their hand. I'm thinking how great they are, not how great I am. I'm thinking this might be my greatest achievement right here. Amen? Now, Jesus had the greatest vision. He said, my vision is you. The Apostle Paul says, uh, you're my joy. You're my crown. I'm struggling night and day to help all men be perfect in Christ. See, but you watch out. We, we, we have to build buildings to help people. But the building is not the vision. It's all the people you want to help. Amen? And that way we don't build monuments to ourselves. Now just to pause a minute because we can't wait to do any repentance or prayer till the end of the message. It will be too much to repent of. Amen? <laughs> so uh, just lift your hand up and ask God for a God-given vision.
Ask him to help you not to run ahead too far, but to follow the next step. And then ask him to sanctify your vision to where it's like Jesus' vision. It's a vision to love people, to help people. And he may have you write a book. He may have you build a building. Who knows what he'll have you do. But it, the book won't be the vision. It'll be the people of the vision. All right. Now, where order comes to a standstill with disorder creates a vertical boundary to your spirituality. And only more divine order can raise that and move that boundary. Order moves the border. Say it out loud. Order moves the border. Now, order is first things first. So first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's order. All these things will be added to you. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to move the speck from your brother's eye. Come on. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth, right? So first things first is order. Now, organization is different, and it moves the horizontal boundary of your life. And organization is everything in its place, every event in its time, and every person with their own responsibility. Now... So a lot of us are disorganized. You go into churches and there'll be burned out light bulbs, there'll be cobwebs, there'll be no paper in the bathroom, and you, you know what right away you know this place is not very organized. See? But they might be really spiritual. You might be able to really feel God there. But they usually don't grow very much. And so you see, when you're real spiritual, you got your life all in order. you got that big old vertical thing. But if you don't have any organization, you don't get outside to your community. You're, you're blocked in. And then, let's say you're really organized, and you've got a super church, but you don't take any time to pray, and you don't have things in divine order, and you're not getting very high. And sad to say, a lot of churches... Don't look like either one of those. They look like little bitty tiny things. They're neither in order or organization. Now, we don't want to do anything slothfully when we're serving God. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Now, one day I was out to walk and I said, Lord, I want to build a great big ministry. How do I build a great big ministry? And God spoke to me. And he said, when I build a whale... I use a great big skeleton to hang the weight on. But when I build a jellyfish, I don't use any skeleton at all. What are you building? And I was a pioneer pastor. I was trying to do everything. So I said, I'm building the world's biggest jellyfish, Lord. Now, how many of you know a jellyfish can only get so big because it has no skeleton? It'll collapse under its own weight, see? And so as you're going to be a leader, if you're going to grow a church or an organization, or it has to be organized, and you have to raise up vertebrae, line them up, and hang some weight of responsibility on them. Because if you hang on to it all, and so many pastors want to hang on to it all, they don't want to let anybody have any power, any authority. And so then they're jellyfish ministries. You can't have a whale of a ministry without a skeleton. <laughs> that's, that's, that's organization. I want to talk to you now about some order. So one time I felt like a horse with all these boxes on its back. And uh, 
I felt like the biggest box was my wife. I wasn't spending any time with her, and I was dragging her around in a car with our little baby, and I'd sign up bus kids all day, preach at night, drive 750 miles a day for three days in a row, get to some little church, have her staying in somebody's attic or a little camp trailer. Mount Shasta, California, we got in a huge fight. She said, I hate this life. And I went walking down the railroad tracks crying and bawling and saying, I could take all this stress if it just wasn't for my wife. God spoke to me, or the devil spoke to me, then said, so why don't you get a divorce? And why don't you get out of the ministry? You could buck all those boxes off. Just buck them off. I said, I don't think I can do that. He said, why don't you just jump off a cliff? Well, you could end it all, and you'd be out from under all that stress. I don't think I could do that. Well, he said, you're just going to have to be tough then and bear the load. He knew I'd collapse under the load. And that's the three ways the devil wants you to handle stress. And I can tell you right now, the devil's been talking to quite a few of you and urging you to buck it all off. And the thought, you may not be actually suicidal, but the thought might come, gee, I wish I could just die and get out of here. It's not a suicide thought, it's a death wish. Still from the devil. And then, and then many of you are listening to the voice that says, you just got to be tough. You're just a sissy. You just got to bear this load. Now, uh, the Lord knows if you don't make any uh, changes, you'll collapse under the load. So the Lord began to speak to me, and he said, identify the boxes. I wrote everything that had me under pressure on a big, long list, and I identified all those boxes. And he said, now, selectively unload. Don't book them all off. Unload some of them. I, be, I circled the traveling ministry. I circled a printing press. That I was trying to buy my own printing press. It was a huge monthly payment. I didn't need a printing press. So I began to selectively unload. And when I did that, he said, now restack the boxes. And I said, what's wrong with the way I got them stacked? He just beamed into me. You got them stacked all wrong. Now, see, he wanted to teach me to spend time with my wife and that my wife shouldn't be, you know, up there on the top big box should be on the bottom. That's where priorities come in. And where priorities are wrong, relationships are strained. Say that out loud. Where priorities are wrong, relationships are strained. Now there's less boxes and they're in the right order. Notice that's divine order. God wants to help you order your priorities. So first thing is first, second thing is second. You say, what's second thing? Your health. Because a dead servant can't serve anybody. It's the most misplaced priority. And I could go to any church and say, what should be priority number two? Everybody will say, my family. Every time. God should be first, then my family. I said, no. God should be first, then it should be your health. Because if you're dead, you can't serve your family. So then the Lord taught me to edify the horse. <laughs> I'm the horse. I've got to bear the load. Amen. But I wasn't sleeping much. I wasn't eating right. I could taste death in my mouth when I was just in my early 30s. And uh, I, I wouldn't have lasted if God hadn't taught me this. And so, pay attention to your diet. How many of you know men know what kind of oil to put in their pickup truck? But they don't know what they're putting in their arteries. Well... Priority number two is my health. Say it out loud. Priority number two is my health. So, you see, order and organization. And the Holy Spirit wants to coach you in that. Moses, when he was the only judge, million people around him, what was his problem? Was it order or organization? 
he, he needed organization. He needed to appoint judges of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Even somebody that talks to God face-to-face needs to get organized. All right. Now, love. I've got my sound man ready to play a song. Get that ready for me. You've got to walk in love. We're in the people-loving business. And I would tell you, before church starts, everywhere I go to preach, almost always the pastor will say, we're going to meet for prayer right over here. And I'm thinking, why didn't you pray a half an hour before church? Right now, people are coming in. We need to be out there greeting people. But instead, they take all the leadership and they get real spiritual for just a few minutes in the back room. Oh, God, moved by your spirit today. I'm thinking, you crazy people. You should have prayed 20 minutes earlier if you want to be spiritual. Get out there and love people. We're in a people-loving business. He said to Peter, do you, do you love me more than these fish? <laughs> and then he said, if you love me, Peter, love my sheep. Now, one day I was trying to pick out a song service, and God didn't like any of the songs. 300 choruses, 1,000 hymns. I couldn't find one that had the anointing. So I said, what is it you want to hear us say to in, What do you want to hear us say to you in worship more than, more than anything else? He spoke to me and said, I want you to promise me that you'll love each other. There wasn't a single song that promised God that. So I asked God to help me write one, and a year later it dropped into my spirit, and since June of of, uh, 2004, maybe it was May 2004, when I wrote this song, I've tried to make it my theme song. I want to sing it to you because we often sing, I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. You can get all the way to heaven. You're going to see him high and lifted up there. Honey, you better see him when he's in prison, when he's hurting, when he's hungry, when he's lonely. Because if you don't see him there, you might not get to heaven. All right, start number four. Let's just worship.
teach me to love you. And he spoke five things to me. He said, love me like Mary that sat at my feet. Then there was a pause and I knew that uh, I'd have to love the Bible uh, like Mary was loving his words. And So if you want to love him like Mary that sat at his feet, you've got to get your Bible out and love the Word of God. And then he said, love me like John who leaned on my breast. And I figured that would be to get alone with him in times of intimate prayer where we'd have a conversation. I could put my ear over his heartbeat, amen, and hear his heart in intimate communion. So if you're going to love him like that, you've got to spend time with him in prayer. He said, love me like the good Samaritan. And I knew that meant to love the hurting and suffering people in the world. And then he said, love me like the woman who anointed my feet. And I, I didn't know what to do on that one. He, he went on to the next one, uh, love me like Abraham who always obeyed me. And I understood that. So I said, what is it? How, how do I love you like the woman who anointed your feet? And he said, my pastors are the feet of the body of Christ. They carry the weight of responsibility for the body as the feet carry the weight of the body. And like the feet, they take the most abuse. So pour your love on pastors. Now, in the book that I'm writing, there's seven ways to say I love you to your family. Say I love you with your time. Get your priorities right. Say, I love you by what you don't say. Stop the flow of condemning words. Then plant the miracle seeds of encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and compassion. Now, I'm just giving you some highlights. Now, listen carefully. All the leadership books will tell you that leadership is influence. But they'll tell you that there's no difference between leading a church, leading an army, leading a sports team, leading a corporation. I'll tell you one big difference. There's plenty of differences. But one is, when you're a spiritual leader, you have influence with Almighty God. And when you have influence with God, you can save your people even if they're not following you. How did Moses save Israel? It wasn't through leadership techniques of going and visiting the top influential people and influencing the influencers so that Korah would behave. 
he saved the people through intercession before God when they were rebelling against him and weren't following him. It was his influence with God. Now, if we're not men and women of prayer, we're not spiritual leaders. And if you're going to be a pastor, somebody that's leading an organization, you can't just say, well, I'm the pastor. We'll let the little old ladies have that prayer meeting. I'll just uh, pray about five minutes a day. And, and they, they, they can do that old, uh, you know, pseudo-spiritual stuff over there. And that's, that's that, that most pastors look at prayer that way. Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and feast with them and they with me. And the Lord showed me that's not just a soul-winning scripture. That's a prayer scripture because he wants to come into the situations of this world, but he needs somebody to open the door in prayer. And then in Luke chapter 12, it says, Be like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. And he said, uh, You're supposed to be waiting and ready to open the door whenever he comes and knocks, but you've got to be dressed and ready for service. He didn't say dressed and ready for evacuation. And he said you've got to have your lamps burning, and you've got to be dressed, and you've got to be listening, and when he knocks, you open the door. And the Lord showed me that uh, that too is a prayer scripture. Sure, be ready for Jesus to return, but uh, be ready to open the door in prayer if he wants you to pray any time of the day or night. And then... The, the clothing is Colossians 3.12 where the Bible tells us to clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so if you're a mean old ornery Pentecostal boogerhead, you're not dressed. And then the motivation to bring glory to God, that's where your heart's on fire to bring glory to God. Now then you're ready to be uh, influential with God. Now tell God you'd like to be influential with God. Just lift your hands up. And so when you're not dressed, you're mean and ornery and selfish and angry, uh, then you're not ready to open the door. And if you don't care about glorifying God, your lamp's not lit. But if you get those things in order, you can open a door for him to come into North Korea from Vermont. And he wants to come into the Justice Department of the United States and bring justice into the Justice Department because it was completely, toxically corrupted. So I've been praying for almost two years to bring justice back to the Justice Department. Now you have to ask him, what do you want to come into, Lord? And you'll perceive his knock. He wants to come into Vermont, doesn't he? He wants to come into all kinds of things here. So, to be spiritual leaders, we, we want to be dressed, have our lamps burning, perceive what he wants to come into, and then open the door for him in prayer and have influence with God. Okay? So, be the kind of person God always hears. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And then the second one is, this is the confidence we have in approaching God if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So you want to have the Lord look at you and say, wow, what a person. Look who's coming to the prayer room. <laughs> that's Miss Sweet Spirit. That's Mr. Sweet Spirit. Uh, and then we want to pray prayers he loves to hear. And if we fill ourselves with the Word of God, we'll pray the kind of prayers he wants to hear. And he'll say, angels, did you hear that? Swing into action. What a prayer. Amen. Now, are you pulling with me in the Spirit? See? I'd like to give you the whole load. Did you hear about the guy that, that uh, only one guy came to church on a snowy blizzard day? It was old Clyde, the rancher. 
And the pastor said, Clyde, there's only you and me here. Should we just cancel church? And he said, now, pastor, if I, I, when, when my cows are out there. If, if I'm out to feed my cows and only one shows up, I'm sure going to feed that cow. pastor says, okay, Clyde. So the pastor led the song service. He made the announcements. He took the offering. He preached the sermon. He made the altar call. Then he went back the back door to shake hands with the people as they left. It was only Clyde. And when Clyde shook his hand, he said, Now, Pastor, if only one cow would have showed up, I sure wouldn't have given her the whole load. (laughs) If you can bear... I've already put in quite a bit, so I tell people when I want to give them a little extra, raise your hands up and shake it to shake the truth down into your legs. Give me a little more room. Amen? Shake it down, and we're going to put some more in there, all right? Okay. Now, humility is absolutely vital. Jesus said, whoever is the most humble is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's what he said. And so leaders have to be humble. The greatest spiritual leaders are the most humble. And Joseph was given a great dream, two great dreams, that he was going to be a ruler. And, uh, and then, all of a sudden, he found himself going down Joseph's elevator of humility. And he was sold as a slave. He went from being an errand boy to a slave. Then he was betrayed, thrown into prison, uh, falsely accused. And he spent uh, quite a few years in prison. And then when he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the butler, and one was executed, like he said, and one was let go. But he said, remember me to Pharaoh. I didn't do anything uh, to be in prison. But that guy forgot him. So then he was on a dead man walking level. See, But all the time, his elevator of grace was going up because he was growing in responsibility because he didn't yell at God. He didn't get mad at God for the situations. He didn't uh, pout and doubt and go without. So he grew in administration over a household, and then he was put over the whole prison. Then when he interpreted the dreams, he started moving in there, and then Pharaoh called him to interpret, and then Pharaoh put him over the whole nation. He had a national ministry, and then after the seven years of famine, the world came to Joseph for food, and he had an international ministry. Now, folks, you... So you have a great call. Well, there's an elevator of humility and an elevator of grace. And if you stop the elevator of humility and say, I ain't going to take any more of this junk. I've had enough. I saw the way people treat pastors. I ain't going to be none of that. I ain't going to take any of that. Man. I ain't going to let them run over me. Amen? Well, then you stop that elevator. I'm convinced that God wants to take all of you up high on an elevator of grace, but this is a personal opinion, just a personal opinion, that most Christians stop the elevator somewhere. As I look, I'm already pretty humble, but I ain't getting no more humble. But anyway, God wants to take you up the elevator of grace. Now, the Bible says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, to give you more grace, he's going to get you going down more humble so he can give you more grace. And don't fight the process. Now, one time I said, teach me the key word in being a great achiever. God said, dependency. Man, that shocked me. Then he taught me the cycle of success begins with depending on God. Then you seek God till you hear God and you obey God and you can persist in obedience because... You're depending on God, and then you achieve through God, and you turn all the glory 
and you start a new cycle as if you didn't know everything. You go back to being a little child and depend on God, and that's how you cycle in success. Now, God said this to me. He said, you'll never be a success. I'm a success. You can cycle in success with me, but don't label yourself a success. Because at any time, you can fly out of that success cycle when you are not humble, you see. You take the glory, or else you don't humbly depend on God, you don't humbly seek God, or you don't humbly obey God. Now, I thought there was somewhere in here. Uh, I had a picture of Jesus uh, and a doctor. The doctor had a test tube, and Jesus had a test tube. And... Uh, Blood test, doctor can tell a lot. Jesus can tell a lot with humility tests. So in my book, I have about 10 different humility tests, and I'll just give you one. God's going to speak to you through, through somebody who doesn't know as much as you know. And if you're humble, you'll recognize it as God. So Moses was talking to God face to face, but God didn't tell him how to organize those judges. He used a new convert to tell him that. That new convert was his father-in-law, and he said, what you're doing is not good. Now, you, you need to organize judges, see? Now, Moses could have said, you know who you're talking to? I talk to God face to face. You're a brand new convert. Sit down and shut up. But Moses recognized it was God. He passed the humility test, but Josiah flunked it. Josiah was the golden boy of revival, and God spoke to him through Pharaoh. Pharaoh of Egypt said, I'm not attacking you. I'm going to go around you and attack Syria. God told me to hurry. If you oppose me, God will wipe you out because God is with me. And Josiah thought, how could this guy that thinks he's the sun god, a pagan idolater, possibly be telling me a word from God? I'm the golden boy of revival. I destroy the idols. So he disguised himself in battle, went out and he disguised himself so he could go fight him, and he got killed at 39 years of age. The revival was over. So all your life, you can't just be humble till you get a big start. Uzziah was humble, and then when he got great, his pride led to his downfall. So we've got to cross this finish line, amen? We've got to stay humble. Now, one day God spoke to me and said, I'm not impressed with your anointing. And the reason is, no matter how big your anointing is, it's His anointing. So He's going to be impressed when you open the door for somebody, when you greet a little child, amen? When you do things out of a heart of kindness, Without anybody watching, it's just kind of reflexive. He's impressed with that. He's impressed when you believe him. He's impressed when you love to spend time with him. Uh, but uh, all the great power that he gives you, you be impressed with him. Don't get impressed with your anointing. Now, I want to talk to you about anointing chasers. These are people that want somebody's double portion, but they don't want to ride the elevator. See? Now, Sister Betty rode the elevator down, and she was a, s a servant many, many years, so then she didn't take a shortcut, but the anointing chasers don't want to serve anybody, they just want to get their double portion of the anointing, <laughs> so Elijah's uh, running from those guys, <laughs> so now Elijah's hiding behind Jesus, and Jesus says to the anointing chasers, stop, he says, can you drink the cup I drink, that's the cup of complete obedience unto death, hmm? Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place in heaven, given him a name above every name. Lift your hand up and tell the Holy Spirit to coach you in humility. Thank you, Father.
Now, this got me into the ministry, humility, because I worked part-time, and after I, I worked free for many months, and then uh, I told the pastor if he'd give me $100 a month, I'd work part-time. And for that $100 a month, I worked about 40 hours a week part-time for him, for the church. So he gave me a little bitty desk, and then he hired a youth pastor, sight unseen, no volunteer work, and gave him a bigger desk than me, and the same salary, $100 a month. And I was going to complain and say, now look, this, this, this new guy, he, he didn't do any volunteer work. And you give him a bigger desk than me, that's not right. And the Holy Spirit just said, keep your mouth shut and do your work. So I humbled myself, kept my mouth shut, and within 30 days the youth pastor was fired. And the pastor looked at that desk one day and said, hey, that desk is bigger than Wes's desk. Give that desk to Wes. And then he hired me full time. Amen. So humility got me into the ministry. Now, I am an anointed teacher. We'll give God the glory for that. But I want to tell you where my teaching anointing began. It began on my way to Bible school where I found out these verses in the Bible, Proverbs 1.23, turn up my rebuke. Behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you and make my words known to you. And I said, that would fix everything wrong with me, God. I make a, And we were driving down the Columbia River Gorge, and I said, I vow to turn at your rebuke. I make a covenant with you. I vow to turn at your rebuke. If you'll take the time to rebuke me, every single time I'll turn at your rebuke. Don't forget, as often as you look down and see the Columbia River, remember that if you take the time to rebuke me, I'll turn at your rebuke. And so God would correct me. And many of his corrections are like jewels that I can open up, amen, and share my treasures with you. Now, anybody could vow to turn at God's rebuke. Now, most people don't, but you could. How many would like to be teachers? Then you've got to be teachable. Lift your hand up and tell the Holy Spirit, he's, Jesus said, he's going to teach you all things. He's going to be your teacher. Well, then you, you say, see, this, this church here has got a lightning rod up there. Lightning rod is just attracting the lightning. And when you have a heart that's teachable and say, Holy Spirit, I want to be led into all truth. I want to be taught all things. I'm just going to communicate with you. Wave your hand at God and say, that's a good deal, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, folks, listen to me. Pride is just as bad as humility is good. And God gave me some big warnings about pride. But one time I said, I want to eat your word, sleep your word, breathe your word, drink your word. I want your word to be my whole life. And, and God interrupted me and said, all right, I'll take you at your word. You will be totally mine. That means you'll have great success. And if, if at the height of your success you turn from your sincere love for me and embrace the praises of men, you'll be committing spiritual adultery. Men will not be able to tell if you commit spiritual adultery. But if you do, I will withdraw from you until you commit sins in the flesh that they can see, and then everyone will know what you are. Then there was a holy hush. Now, we're all going to have that same if. If you turn from your sincere love and embrace the praises of men. See, if you'd steal glory from God, you'd steal somebody's wife. You'd steal somebody's husband. You'd steal money out of the treasury. And then one time I was trying to start a church, and the, and the uh, presbyter in the area was so mean he wanted me to go start in an in a ethnic area of, of a whole group of people that he didn't want in his church. And I would have gladly done that, but I couldn't find a building in that area of town. I said, if I can't find a building in that area of town, where should I go? He said, two words come to mind, but I won't say them. And go to hell. 
He was supposed to be a helpful overseer. So I went to a church service and I said, oh God, I said, I don't ever want to be like that man. And God spoke to me, when you win the crown, don't bow down and worship your image in it. Your achievements can reflect your own face. And you can make your achievement your idol and bow down to it and worship yourself in your shiny crown. Or you could cast your crown at the feet of Jesus. Now lift your hands and ask the Lord to protect you from pride. See, we don't want to fear man, but we don't want the praise of man. Amen. Oh, there's the blood test. It got out of order. All right, well, move on. Now, how many of you think that's not a smartphone there? That's a dumb phone. (laughs) And somebody says, I took out the SIM card. And this car is from no movement motors. And the guy says, I took out the engine. Then here's no threat fellowship. And the devil says, I took out the power. Now the Bible says that in the last days, many will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And the Lord beamed this into me. That many times we have listed our beliefs in our bylaws and little tracts that we hand out and say we believe in all the power of God. But we dismiss services really quick and don't have any prayer time in the altar services, don't give God any opportunity to display His power. And so in that regard, we're denying His power because we're denying Him an opportunity. So whenever you have a gathering, we ought to all be saying, God, we want you to demonstrate your power. We we, we want you to be glorified through a demonstration of your power. And friends, if there's no power in our ministry, we ought to be deeply ashamed and pray until there gets power. God could have said uh, on the day of Pentecost, you go to Jerusalem and you're going to get wisdom or you're going to get love. But he, he didn't use any other word. He just said, uh, you're going to be clothed with power. When he sent his first disciples out, He started out with power, gave him authority over sickness and disease, demons. I remember one time when I was playing basketball in the church sanctuary. I had moved the chairs back, and it was a gymnasium we were using, and the door shook at 11 o'clock at night, and a a guy in a spooky voice said, Brother Wes, help me, I've got a demon. And I let him in. He was a nice guy, and I proceeded to tell him he was a Christian, and he couldn't have a demon. I sent him home. The next day, he ate his own excrement and boiled his hands in boiling water and was put in an insane asylum and lost his wife. Got a divorce. Man, I was shook up. I had a little power, but I didn't know anything about getting people free from demons. And most of the spiritual leaders, most of the leaders in the church world doesn't know a thing about getting people free from the devil. And the whole society's full of the devil. Now, we can be, you can get really kooky in that. And I, God gave me a fiery, tangible anointing in July of 1991. So I feel fire in my hands, a lot of times fire in my feet. I've had bolts jump out of me. And I've since got a lot of people delivered. But listen carefully. Be real careful when you're dealing with demons. Listen. Major on worship. Minor on warfare. If you reverse those... You'll open a door for the devil and he'll come in and oppress you. 
major on revealing Christ, minor on exposing the devil. Sometimes you have to expose the devil. But if that becomes your major, it'll work for the devil. I'm going to have to amen myself. Amen, Brother Wesley. So I had to learn that. But you see, I wasn't satisfied without power. Now the Holy Spirit will give us power. But Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah, they all told about people that says, uh, this people wants a prophet that says, I'll prophesy to you plenty of wine and beer. And says, uh, my people love it this way. What will they do in the end? See, the American church pretty much loves powerless ministry. They like a little bitty short sermonette. Like a little quick service. Maybe they come to it once a month, maybe twice a month. Folks, if there ain't no power there, you better find some place where there is power. And if you're in leadership, you better ask God for the power. Now, we don't want power to glorify ourselves, or we'd have corrupt motives. Now, conviction is something that's been removed from the American church. People don't even know what conviction is. Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of three things. Of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Now, the conviction of sin is when he pulls you back. And Paul said, my gospel came to you with great conviction. Powerful conviction. See, but the modern church thinks that conviction is condemnation. A con- condemnation is a push away from God. The devil specializes in condemnation. So the modern church thinks we don't want to condemn anybody, so we'll just take out all that that pull stuff. Now here's a modern preacher, see, and there's a guy down in the well, and he says, help me, pull me up. And the pastor says, we don't believe in strong pulls of the Spirit. But here's a little help. He throws him a little sermonette. See that teddy bear? He throws him a Bible verse and says, God loves you just as you are. And he leaves him in the, leaves him in the pit. Let's lift our hands and tell the Lord we'd like to be empowered. We'd like to preach and have a pull from the Holy Spirit, pulling people out of their sin, pulling people into the heart of God, pulling people out of darkness, getting people out of the well of oppression. Hallelujah. Somebody say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, there's some things spiritual leaders don't do. I have a whole chapter on what they don't do. And the first thing they don't do, listen to me, is they do not manipulate for money. Jesus said there will be a vast crowd of preachers in hell. And Jesus, they'll say, don't you remember we did great and mighty works in your name? I said, all I know about you is you are a worker of iniquity. Now, when you watch Christian television, you see somebody saying, folks, if, if you'll send in $1,000 right now, God's going to do this for you. He's going to make you a millionaire, blah, blah. It's a bunch of lies. It's a bunch of manipulation. It's false prophets who are manipulating for money, and they'll end up in hell. Now, you can... Tell people that God will bless their offering, but God blesses obedience. So you just have to say something like this. Say, folks, now if the Holy Spirit directs you to do something, you just obey Him and He'll bless you wonderfully. When I'm in churches and they take offerings for me, I say, folks, now if you give an offering for me, it's going to help me pay my bills and take care of my wife. <laughs> and then the pastor's going to pray. So he prays. 
I get up and say, thank you, everybody. We sure do appreciate you. I don't even claim a certain amount because I don't want to covet anybody's stuff. So whenever I leave a church, I leave with clean money, not dirty money. Now, Paul said, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver but of wood and clay. Some of these vessels are vessel of honor. Some are vessel of dishonor. If a man will cleanse himself from the dishonorable things, he'll be a vessel of honor, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. Now, in your house you have a pitcher that you use to mix up iced tea and lemonade, and uh, you also have a vessel of dishonor. You only put bad things in that. Now, you wouldn't go get the frozen grape juice out of the refrigerator, walk into the bathroom, lift up the toilet lid, pour the concentrated grape juice in there, stir it up like a punch bowl, and serve your family out of the toilet. You say, man, we would never do that. Well, neither would God. And you determine whether you're a toilet bowl for the devil or a pitcher for the Holy Spirit by what you choose to put in your life. So they say 67% of all preachers in America are watching Internet pornography. Well, and you're not going to be a vessel of honor. So, don't. I've never drank alcohol. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never taken street drugs. I don't believe in gambling. I tell people gambling is covetousness. You have to covet somebody else's money because there's no equal exchange. Nine people or ten people lose, so... You can win. So if you rejoice over your winning, your heart's getting hard. You have no feeling for the people who are uh, losing their house, uh, losing their marriages, losing their homes. You're building your fortune over the bones and ashes of destroyed families. You think God likes that? I think he hates gambling. But you see, the modern church wants to get as close to the world as it can get. You want to get as far away as you can. You want to put the best stuff in your life. Amen? Because God taught me, if you turn away from the devil's entertainment, I'll entertain you. And when you get somebody healed, the demons go out of somebody. I was in one town in Michigan, and the lady had had a demon inside of her body that poked her, and she'd bleed out of her intestines. That had gone on for four years. She'd feel it moving around. I taught on forgiveness. She hated her mother or her her uh, mother-in-law. This woman had married her dad late in life, and when he got seen now, she sent him from Michigan to Florida where nobody could visit him. And she hated that woman, and a demon came into her. And they prayed and prayed. They couldn't get it out, but when I taught on forgiveness, she forgave that woman, and I prayed for her to be filled with the Spirit. I never did cast anything out. It just flushed out. And she felt it leave. That's entertaining. <laughs> I had a guy grab my feet one time. I couldn't get away from him. I bent over and said, I don't know what this guy needs, Lord, but it turned out he had a polio paralyzed leg. For 40 years he'd been dragging his left leg, but when he got up from the altar, he was bending it and ran around and around it. That's entertainment. That's holy entertainment. God wants to entertain you. Lift your hands. God wants to be your entertainment. He wants to use you in the Spirit. He, he said, these signs will follow those that believe. Hallelujah. He didn't say they're going to follow a few preachers. He said, they're going to follow my believers. And they'll preach and then I'll confirm the Word with signs that follow. You must witness, but he, He'll witness with you. Now, folks, if you're going to be a spiritual leader, you're going to get lots of rejection. 
The greater your ministry, the more rejection you're going to get. And I want to tell you something that will help you survive in the ministry. Rejection is just a knife that's, uh, you're listening now, right? It's just a knife laid on the desk in front of you. can't hurt you. The only way it hurts you is if you pick it up and stab yourself with it. And you do that by saying, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? People are leaving my church. I, I preach the very best sermons I can possibly preach. I wait on God. I get the title. I study hard. I preach it under the anointing and people leave. What's wrong with me? You've got to learn to say, what's wrong with them? And never say, I'm a good person if they love me. That puts you completely under the devil's thumb. Say this, I'm a good person if I love them and I'll always love them and they'll never be able to escape my love. See, because a lot of people don't want to disciple up. You preach a good sermon, they're going to leave because they got itching ears. They're going to find somebody to tell them what they want to hear. I'll tell the, the one last thing here. Don't let the devil grade your report card. He's not your teacher. Only your teacher's allowed to grade your report card. The Holy Spirit's your teacher. About one-third of every audience, you see, is letting the devil grade the report card. That's why they're down, because they're trying really hard, and the devil's giving them Fs. But once you learn, hey, you're not my teacher, shut up, you lying devil. And you say, Holy Spirit, you give me an honest grade. And the Holy Spirit said, honey, you're, you're getting a C+. Plus. <laughs> you come a little closer to me, you can get an A. And so then you say, oh, I feel better. <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> He'll give you an honest grade. But he won't discourage you. He'll always encourage you. Never let the devil grade your report card. Now, how do you get faith? You've got to get into the Word of God till, till, the, till the, uh, the will of God is revealed to you, whether in prayer or, or studying the Word, because the supernatural faith is inside of the revelation of God's will. So you want to spend a lot of time in the Word of God and a lot of time seeking Him. Fill me with the knowledge of your will. And then the success books are going to tell you that the universe wants to help you, that it's a kind universe and nonsense. The universe would kill you in a second if God wasn't controlling it. Never give God's glory to the universe. I'm, I'm just about done. Now, spiritual leaders, Isaiah said, the Israel's watchmen are like... Big old fat dogs, they got a big appetite and they like to lay around and sleep and they can't bark. Israel's watchmen were not giving warnings to sin. Now the modern church takes out all the warnings and we just say, if you come to Christ, He'll make you prosperous, He'll give you peace, He'll bless you, He'll put your family together. But see, we think it's old-fashioned to say there's a burning hell created for the devil and his angels, and down there there's not a single drop of water, and that's where the worm never dies, and the fire is never quenched. I preached a sermon on salvation one day, and this man says, your sermon last night on faith was the best I've ever heard on faith. I said, great, well, I was wonderful, what do you think of my morning service? He said, you really blew it in the morning. You preached a salvation message and didn't say one thing Jesus said about hell. He said, if you're going to preach on salvation, you've got to quote something Jesus said about hell. So when I have people that are unsaved in the audience, I remind them that there's a fiery furnace where people are weeping and gnashing their teeth. I quote some of the things Jesus said, and then I see people getting saved. John the Baptist said, uh, it's not lawful for you to have your, uh, uh, your brother's wife. Now see, the modern church doesn't want to warn anybody about sin. They want to let sin just fill all the congregations, sin in the choir, sin in the staff. Don't warn anybody because somebody with money is going to leave the church. 
But if you're a spiritual leader, you're going to be like Jesus and say, you blind Pharisee, first take the beam out of your eye. Otherwise, it's woe to you. If you're going to be a prophet, you might go to jail. You might get persecuted for giving a warning. People don't want to hear that. But you won't be a spiritual leader if you don't. You've got to have... Well, you've got to be a watchman. You'll have to warn. Paul, Paul was a great leader. How many... He, he had great uh, effect. But he said to the Ephesians, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Peter was a great preacher, but on the day of Pentecost, it says, with many other words, he warned them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Jesus had great results, but he said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It'd be a lot better to go to heaven with one hand than cast into hell with two hands. Lift your hands and tell God you'd like to be faithful enough to warn this generation that there is consequences. There's a fiery eternity prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want you to go there, but it's real. You better avoid it. Now, every leadership book will say that integrity is vital to a leadership. In my book, I've got a list of 119 virtues that I've defined with a little couple sentences at what they would look like if they were fleshed out in my life. And in the Bible it says to pursue pursue godliness, Paul told Timothy. And he said, think about these things if they're excellent, praiseworthy, virtuous, beautiful. Then it says, uh, Colossians 3.12, clothe yourself in compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience. Amen? And then uh, told, uh, Peter said, uh, you women, make yourself beautiful with a sweet and submissive spirit that's in a great Christ in the sight of God. And Paul said, train yourself to be godly. And then Peter said, make an all-out effort to add to your faith. And then he named a whole bunch of virtues. And then Paul said, we commend ourselves in the sight of all men. And then he named a bunch of virtues. Seven different things the Bible says to do with virtues. Now, when you try to make those virtues with self-help, you get fake fruit, just like plastic fruit. But when you abide in the Lord, spend time with him, the real fruit of the Spirit will be in your life. And I'm going to tell you a beautiful truth that I got, and I'm just about done. I was reading the red letters, and I got all the way through the book of Revelation. And Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me a white robe to cover your shameful nakedness. And I said, buy? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Why do you say buy it? It makes it look like you don't know your own theology. He said, turn to Isaiah 55.1. That scripture says, come to the waters, you who are thirsty, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be like a well of water bubbling up inside of you, and it bubbled up inside of me, and I suddenly knew that when you buy with money, there's an equal exchange of value. The milk's worth the money, and the money's worth the milk, and you're only exchanging equal value. When you buy without money, it's an exchange, but it's not equal. So you say, dear Lord, I, I really want to be spiritual. I, I, I want all those beautiful virtues. I want to be kind and compassionate and gentle, and, and I want to be filled with love. Would you please give me that? And he'll say, honey, what are you going to buy it with? What do you mean? What do you got in your life there? You don't want to know. I already know. I want you to tell me. Lord, I got some worry. I got some fear. I got some whatever it is that makes me want to control everything. Uh, sometimes I feel real prideful. Sometimes I have self-hatred. Sometimes I'm in mediocrity. 
I got a pretty good amount of self-pity, and then I got a big pile of this stuff that wants to show them what it felt like. God said, that's called malice. I got a bunch of that, too. And that's all I have. God says, honey, buy it with that. You give me the trash. I'll give you the treasure. If you don't, if you don't give me your trash, you see, then I can't give you my treasure. That's why I said you've got to buy it. But buying without money means your trash ain't worth anything. <laughs> Let's make an exchange. Now, I want you to say out loud, I could do that. See, the devil's going to tell you, you can't be spiritual. You can't get spiritual enough. That's too hard for you. Say, shut up, you lying devil. I, I got a bunch of trash I can trade in. Hallelujah. <laughs> Wave your hands at God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Be encouraged. You can buy without money. All you got to do is be thirsty. Come to the waters. Thank you, Jesus. Now we come to the end. The everlasting ministry. Or he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. You see, I never want to quit the ministry. I enjoy it too much. Someday it'll all be over. So I try to make it last as long as I can, like someone that's a good violinist. They'll bring that bow all the way across the strings. Somebody that's a good singer will take a big old breath and then they'll hold it a little bit, a few seconds longer than other people, but eventually it comes to an end. I'm going to make my life last as long as I can on earth. I have this great hope that I'll pass from this ministry to an even greater ministry where he says, you were faithful in a few things. Take charge of ten cities or something like that. The everlasting ministry. I want to be in the ministry forever. Forever. Now, I want to see Jesus. I've never seen him. Catherine Kuhlman never saw Jesus. Got all these people healed but never saw a vision of Jesus. I'm still hungry to see him, but I'm hungry to hear him more than I'm hungry to see him. I want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now just lift your hands to God and tell him, oh God, I want that. I want to be found faithful. I want to do the most I can. I want to bring you massive glory. I want to stay faithful. I want to stay pure. I want you to be my teacher. I want you to motivate me. I want to cycle in success with you. Man, Lord, help me get organized. Help me help me be in divine order. Give me your vision. Show me the next step. Set my heart ablaze. Use me to be a door opener for God. I want to be. I want to lead many to righteousness. Daniel said, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars in the firmament. Lift your hand up to God. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a title as a leader. But you have to say, God, I want to lead many to righteousness. Come on, every one of you. Every single one of you. You want to lead many to righteousness. Now let's stand to our feet. Can I have some ushers just move this back out of the way? Now, I didn't even look at the time, but...
I gave you the whole load. <laughs> now, how many of you know there's more, uh, there's more in the book when it comes out? And I would urge you to pray that I could get it out. And then I believe it's a message that uh, is dangerous to the devil, so I would appreciate your prayers. <laughs> but you understand I'm, I'm saying keep me in your prayers. I would sure appreciate it. Now, I believe in you. And in a moment, I'm just going to ask you to assemble up here, and I'd like to just say some prayers over you. And then you might want to just pray with each other, or you might just want to go to bed. We've had a long service. But how many would devote yourself and say, Lord, I, I want to be a minister. I want to be somebody that follows you so that people can follow me. I, I want to lead many to righteousness. Come and just stand here and give yourself over to God, and, 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 and the Holy Spirit is the leader.